Welcome to episode 112 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it again. We are. How are you doing tonight? You know, I can't complain except for all the crazy snow we got this week and now it is already melted. That's what I heard. I heard that it took you like two hours to drive two miles. Yeah, it was great. It was like California happens here. Oh, like the, the traffic, California traffic. Yes. C- cut to everybody who listens to this show in California just throwing their audio devices. We have a fair number of California listeners too, like specifically Southern California. This is the problem with living in the Northeast that people don't realize is we just can't get away from talking about the weather. Like it's ingrained in us. It's in our blood somewhere that when you get two people together and they ask, how is life? Inevitably, that question really is, what has your weather done recently to you? Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge part of like everything. Like it it affects everything. You have to like structure your work around it. You have to structure like when you're going to like walk the dog everything is impacted by the weather like more than other areas in the country that i've lived in i think and in some ways that's a blessing because even in the midst of this crazy snow that we had that disrupted like you said basically all parts of life and made things treacherous and dangerous in the midst of all that i was just thinking how fragile we are as people like for all the things we can control and plan and the technology we have to advance our own agendas our own human agency just a little bit of cold water yeah. can disrupt everything. How how much God is in control with the simplest of elements yeah. is just astounding to me. Like his sovereignty is both in the grand things, how he sets up kingdoms and he humbles nations, and also how he stores up water and sends snow. It's incredible yeah. to me. Yeah, that's funny too, because, you know, thinking about Job, how one of the things that God kind of confronts him with is like, well, do you know where I keep the snow? Right. And like that that's like a like a big mysterious thing, you know, even more mysterious to Job than it is in some ways to us. Like we we have an understanding sort of of how the weather cycle works, but at the end of the day it's still there's still a lot of mystery in the atmosphere and in nature that we don't understand. But Job it would have been like, Oh, no, I don't I don't know anything about that. <laughs> so yeah, we serve it's, a big God. It's like the ultimate burn, isn't it? Like what it a great is. question. Like, do you know where the snow's at? Yeah. <laughs> like, no. I love no, that I, I love that section of Job. Yeah, it's so great, right? Yeah, it is really great. So let's hop into our topic tonight. All right. Since we just already spiritualized the weather, we need to go further, right? Yes. So we're gonna talk about <laughs> spiritualizing the weather tonight. No, we're not gonna talk about that anymore. What are we gonna talk about, Jesse? So we're gonna get into a little bit of gratitude and chatting about that. And this is, I have a feeling we didn't plan this, of course, because that would be outside the scope of what we do on this podcast where Planning? we actually, yeah, where yeah. we actually plan something. But I have a feeling this is not going to be like your sentimental Hallmark Thanksgiving episode, kind of fuzzy yeah. sentimentalism episode on gratitude, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're thankful for the show. We're thankful for our listeners. Um, we're, we're thankful for all sorts of things. But I wanted to focus 
a little bit more on like a theology of gratitude than on necessarily expressing gratitude like on the show tonight. What do you think about that? Yeah, no joke. That's exactly what I was thinking that really I was approaching it from this standpoint that gratitude is actually a theological construct. So we are once again, same mind. Yes. It's like we're brothers who've been podcasting for 112 (laughs) episodes together. Something like that. Something like that. So what I was thinking, you know, as I was thinking about how the Bible talks about gratitude or Thanksgiving, you know, we had like a Thanksgiving service today and it was very much centered around like speaking your Thanksgiving. Like that sounded really super charismatic. It wasn't meant to be, but like verbalizing, (laughs) verbalizing what you're thankful for, verbalizing, you know, I'm thankful for salvation. I'm thankful for my church family, all all good things and all things that we should verbally thank God and thank others for. But I started to think about how the Bible um, frames the concept of gratitude. And it's very rarely just a verbal thing in, in, in my study. Have you encountered that too? Yeah, that makes sense. It's certainly a lot more than we usually make it. And I think that's somewhat prone. We're prone to do that because of kind of the cultural influence. But what comes easiest when we think about Thanksgiving is to somehow give it some expression by way of us being the center of that, if that makes sense. And the Bible speaks of it way more comprehensively than that. Yeah. And so, you know, if you just run like a quick search, and obviously this is not an in-depth, like an exegetical word study, but if you just run a quick search on the word thank in the ESV, the most common word association with thanks, thank or thanksgiving is sacrifice and offering. So primarily in the Old Testament, the way that a person shows that they're thankful to God is by offering sacrifice of some sort. And so I started to think about that, and I started to think about how being thankful really should be more of an action than it is like a verbal verbal situation. Right. I think that makes good sense because gratitude, like properly understood, rightly understood— is really coming to grips with having an attitude that is fully appreciative of what God has done in our life, so much so that we cannot help but respond with some kind of action. And talk can be cheap sometimes, honestly. So it's yeah. not just, of course, saying, well, I really appreciate that this is great. Um, also as well, like you saying that reminded me that when we see the word thanks in the Bible, it's always really paired with God himself. So right. when we we come into like the season of Thanksgiving, The problem that I see is that most people are only participating in really partial gratitude because real gratitude has to have an object. So how do you thank, how do you become grateful for something that's outside of human agency? Like you mentioned salvation before, for instance, or even just good health, which many people will be thankful for this time of year. But who, to whom do you give thanks for that health? And what do you do to express that thankfulness in response? Yeah. So it, it, it strikes me that there's always this object to whom we are thankful. And the, the fact of giving a sacrifice is in a way reflecting that relationship of gratitude, not just the abstract idea of being appreciative for something. Yeah. You know, I, I think that sometimes too, we, we do lose sight of this active component of gratitude, right? So like, if you think of Thanksgiving dinner, like the classic tradition is to like go around the table and say, like, say what you're thankful for. And what I'm what I'm learning as I study scripture is that that the this complex of like good works and gratitude and love for God, it, it all sort of circulates and all sort of like spins around in the same air. So Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think right. when we look at the Old Testament, 
it's sort of the same idea of like, if you are thankful for what I've given you, then you will, you will give an offering or a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. So it's, it's the same kind of like outward working of our gratitude or our love or our uh, devotion to God that results in good works and faithful obedience that, you know, we've kind of been harping on this in different ways throughout this whole last year, kind of this law gospel dynamic that we've been trying to sort of get our heads around. And I think we can sometimes use like an attitude of thankfulness or a verbal expression of thankfulness and substitute that for the practicality of what thankfulness should do in our life. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I think that's challenging because we often don't think of it in that way. We think that an expression verbally is enough to validate that we have appropriately appreciated and metabolized what has been done for us. But in terms of Paul speaking about being a living sacrifice, what is that sacrifice except an expression of gratitude for what has been done? It's almost like a giving over that gratitude must come at a cost. Cheap gratitude yeah. is not really gratitude if it, if it doesn't cost you anything. And in comparison, it's, you know, it's interesting that our culture really does this really good job at actively encouraging and cultivating discontentment. So this time of year, we're about to be bombarded as always with you know all this kind of advertising, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. I think that there's, there's a place for marketing, of course, and expressing value. But by nature, it's biased toward creating or intensifying some kind of sense of need. It's almost like advertising curates feelings of deficiency. And if you pair that, like you're saying, against what even like Paul says in Philippians, uh, Philippians 4, he's saying, you know, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I've often read that and thought, well, what is the secret that he's talking about? And I think that's several verses earlier when he says, rejoicing in the Lord. And what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord, but to give back, to be, to be overwhelmed with gratefulness for what God has done. But unless that overwhelmingness actually translates into behavior in the same way that James talks about it, then I think you're absolutely right. Our gratitude is very cheap. It's at least one dimensional and it may not be actually real because we haven't done anything to express it that actually inconveniences us. So this parallel between love and gratitude, I think is almost like the two rails on a train track that run parallel with one another. Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't like a super counterintuitive thought, but I feel like it is something that we don't always grasp onto. So, you know, last month was October and a lot of people celebrate like pastoral appreciation month. And what we typically do is we do something to show our gratitude. So it's it's not usually enough, or I, I shouldn't say it's not enough, but it's not usually, we don't usually feel like it's sufficient to have just a bare thank you. So like, for example, like I purchased a book from my pastor. A lot of people will like make a card or invite them over for a meal. And I think it's that same kind of feeling is like your gratitude has to actually there has to be some leather on the, the soles of your gratitude, right? There has to be some shoe leather and some elbow grease to your gratitude. And right. what's what I found interesting is if you look at the way that the Hebrew word that gets translated as like Thanksgiving or something like that in the you know, in the passages that talk about a thanks offering, it's related to to the the verb that has to do with like extending your hands in praise. It's a like a variation of that. So the picture that you're getting is like you're actually doing something to express worship to God in an active manner that's oriented around your gratitude. It's not, it's not the same as um, 
what we might say like adoration, which is, you know, just straight up um, praising God for who he is. But it's this active, this active recognition of the blessings that God has given us. And it's an active recognition of, of the way that God has um, provided for us that, that results in some sort of movement, some sort of movement of the hand an extension of the hand. And I just think that's a really interesting picture of how Thanksgiving should work. Yeah, there's so many beautiful word pictures in the Old Testament surrounding the word of thanks or gratitude. And we have a disservice, at least in our culture, because we have all these cliches and words around the word thanks that are mainly verbal. Like, you know, we give thanks or yeah. we, we talk about, like you said, saying, sharing something that we, thank, we are thankful for. But you're right. There's like this give and take in the sense that when we truly express that we are thankful to God, we're willing to, in a way, like turn over everything that he has given us that makes us even thankful for him, even our very lives, which is way more intimate than merely, you know, placating with words. And you're right. Cause it's kind of common sense. Like for instance, you and I are both married. Anybody who's listening to this has been married or is courting somebody. If all you ever did was express your thankfulness to a person in word, it probably would have come a time where that would not be enough to right. really show that you are thankful for the impact they have in your life or what they've done for you. And that expression comes in various ways. Sometimes it's just taking out the trash without being asked. Sometimes it's in the form of a gift, but more often than not, it's going to be in some type of action that comes with a sacrifice. And so there we're back to like, where in the old Testament we have these literal sacrifices in the new Testament, there's a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of offering, a sacrifice of service. Right. But all those things I think must flow out of a heart that's filled with gratitude. And I would go like even further if I can like jump on your point to say that is, I think the true Christian life, the one who has been transformed and regenerated by God, all of these things that were once where the law had dominion and brought death by way of legality and imposed some type of behavior that we didn't necessarily feel or want to comply with in the new Testament, in the regenerate regenerated life, that heart of gratitude now fills us with praise in such a way that we want to go forward and do those same things, not because they bring us some kind of meritorious favor, but because we love God and we're thankful to him. So, I mean, I think you're right. We need to kind of press on that in our own lives to say, how am I expressing gratitude? Like when I'm in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, as I'm even worshiping, as I'm, I'm being attentive to the sermon, if are people seeing in me somebody who is doing this out of motivation that is thankfulness and gratitude toward God? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things I've been studying the confessions um, probably in depth now for, I don't know, three, four years, I've been really kind of focusing on the confessional part of Reformed theology. And one of the things that's always impressed me with the Heidelberg Catechism is the structure it has. You know, there's there's um, guilt, grace, and gratitude, or they sometimes it's, it's written as like misery, deliverance, and gratitude. But the gratitude section of the Heidelberg Catechism is the equivalent of the Westminster Catechism's um, what duty does God require of man? So in the the Heidelberg's conception, gratitude is, as we've been saying, gratitude is about obedience. And, you know, when I was in like confirmation class, when I was in like ninth or 10th grade, we had like memory verses we had to do. And one of the memory verses was Romans 12, um, two, one, well, we did one and two, but I never understood that passage um, because you know, it's, let me just read it. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I I never understood that because 
you know, in my little ninth grade mind, which which was still very fresh and new to Christianity, I, I, I thought that like I was offering myself as a sacrifice in almost like a salvific sense, because that was the only framework for sacrifice that I had was my only understanding of the Old Testament. And this was the wrong understanding of the Old Testament. This is part of why it's so important to get our head around biblical theology and and the, the broad sweep of you know type and anti-type is my only concept of sacrifice in the Old Testament was, well, sacrifice is how the Jews were saved. Right. God, God didn't God didn't send them to hell because they offered these sacrifices. And so I connected the sacrifice of Romans 12.1 with some sort of salvific sacrifice. But as I read this uh, passage now, it certainly sounds more along the lines of a sacrifice of thanksgiving that's being brought or a peace offering, right? So we, we um, because of the mercies of God, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is, is already holy and acceptable to God. Right on. And this is our spiritual or rational. This is our, this is our act of worship. And so th- this... This um, this coming to God and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, we, we climb onto the altar and we offer ourselves to God in thanksgiving. And then what comes next? Not being conformed to the pattern of this world, being transformed by the renewal of our mind and testing and discerning what the will of God is. Right. So so even in Paul, in Romans 12, we see this workflow and everything prior to Romans 12 for the most part, is the indicatives of salvation. This is what Christ has done for you. This is what God has done in Christ to make you righteous and acceptable to God. And then everything after Romans 12 or 12 and following is this is what you do as a result. And this imagery of sacrifice of thanksgiving is right smack dad in the transition point. So what, what, what Paul seems to be saying, right? He's a good, he's a good Jew. He understands this old Testament. He understands that the, the Israelites came and they gave the thanks offerings in recognition for what God had done. And then out from that comes obedience to the law. Outward conformity to God's precepts is the thank offering that we give to God. So this, this just circulates around this whole concept we've been talking about for the last year about how sanctification is not us, um, making ourselves more holy. It's about God making us holy. And then we live as a result of that holiness in a particular way. Right on. That's a beautiful, brilliant picture, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I it mean, really Paul is. Puts out there. It's, yeah. It's, it's something that we should just, we should probably just stop talking now and let everybody meditate on that. Yeah. I'm um, just going to read the rest of Romans <laughs> out loud here. <laughs> Best podcast ever. By the way, I totally like the the triple G's in the Heidelberg better than like the D M, whatever G. the third one was. It's still gratitude. Oh, is it still gratitude? Yeah, okay, yeah. I love I love the triple G's. So I've been thinking about that almost in terms of the opposite, and I think that they both come to a center and arrive at the same point. So what I find odd is that sometimes we think of thankfulness itself as its own end goal, which is not the point at all. And I was thinking of Romans 1, because I think what we often see in the unbeliever's life, but sometimes in our own, is a subtlety of Romans 1, run, one not Romans run, <laughs> playing out in Thanksgiving, especially at the holiday season, because there, as Paul's talking about, you know, we're basically God's turning us over and we're exchanging the truth for a lie and we're worshiping the created rather than the, the creator. 
And so it's funny to me that you, there are all these studies now that are kind of focusing on the great psychological benefits of being thankful. Have you seen this kind of stuff? Like, you know, yeah. it's really great for you if you list like three things that you're really grateful for. It changes your attitude and your perspective is better and, and you'll work harder and you'll be a better person. And of course, that's just making Thanksgiving its own end in of itself. And it's worshiping right. the created thing rather than the creator. And, uh, you know, I think that the opposite of what you said is also true. And that is for me, I've often considered gratitude in some ways to be kind of the primal sin. I mean, I know that we yeah. talk about pride, but I think gratitude is really a close second. So let me read a couple of verses from Romans 1. This is 20 through 22. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So yeah. what I've been blown away by this as I've been looking at this passage is really at the center, there's this indictment of thanklessness. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. And I think what Paul kind of wants us to understand is that the refusal to honor God and give thanks is this kind of like raw form of the primal sin. You yeah. know, like we could speculate, you know, what, what would, what explains the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden? And I think part of it is a lack of proper thankfulness was at the core of their sin. I mean, God gave them unspeakable riches in abundance, but forbade them the fruit from one tree. And yeah. I think a proper thankfulness, like you're saying, in form of a sacrifice of obedience would have really led our first parents to avoid that fruit at all costs and obey the Lord's yeah. command. So it would seem to me that being thankful or unthankful rather, like refusing to recognize God as the source of all good things is very close to the essence of the primal sin, which would mean that the opposite, what you just said, um, must be, True, that that would be the closest we can come to really um, living a life that's in full obedience to God. I don't know, does that yeah. make sense? That's kind of like my rambling thought on Romans 1 and how it fits into Thanksgiving. No, it, it, it does make sense. Is, you know, we we are such an uh, an unthankful people most of the time. And every time that we sin, we are looking at God and more or less saying, all of these rich blessings that you've given us are not enough and we have to pursue our own sources of satisfaction. Right. Um, you know, and that's, that's what Adam and Eve did. And as much as it loathes me to cite John Piper positively, that doesn't really loathe me that much. Um, his Christian hedonism, which I don't agree with entirely, but it really gets at this, right? Is that right is that our primary call or one of our primary calls as Christians is to find our satisfaction in God. Not, not even in the gifts that God gives us, although we, we can rest and be satisfied in the, the, the temporal blessings that God gives us, but our ultimate satisfaction is not in the, the blessings that God gives us in this life. It's not even in the eternal blessings that we have in terms of um, eternal life and eternal existence or the, you know, the, the, the joy of the new heaven and the new earth, but it's in union with Christ himself. It's, it's that we've said this before. The beauty of Christian salvation is that we get God. God is our inheritance. Right 
And so I'm just going to read from the Westminster real quick because I, I quoted the Heidelberg and I got to, now I got to get the Westminster in here. Even it out. So chapter 16, which is titled of good works, section two says these good works done in obedience to God's commands are the fruit and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, so on and so forth. And so, you know, in the Reformed tradition particularly, and the broadest, the Protestant tradition broadly, um, our good works are consistently seen as a manifestation or a demonstration of our thankfulness. And this is one of those areas that we disagree with Roman Catholicism in, right? In Roman Catholicism, you don't do good works out of thankfulness. You do good works because if you don't, you're going to continue to degrade and eventually end up in hell, right? So it's it's... You can't do them out of gratefulness because they're meritorious, right? right. Um, Paul, I forget which chapter it is, but Paul basically says, look, if you're working for your salvation, then salvation is not a gift because no one works for a gift. They work for a wage. And so in Roman Catholicism, thankfulness can't really be a part of the system, right? They can talk about it. They can act as though they're thankful. They probably even feel um, feelings of thankfulness, but the good works that they do cannot be, at least not in a strict sense, cannot be examples of their thankfulness. They cannot be the result of their thankfulness because it's by those good works that they're obtaining that which, that which they claim to be thankful for. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's a, just a totally different system, but the, the reform tradition really lands on this idea of good works, obedience as thankfulness and I think that we just, it's its not something that I had ever really thought of before that. So, um, you know, I thought maybe we could take a little bit of time um, and just unpack this. Like, let's put some shoe leather on this. What are we actually going to do? How are we going to live our lives differently because of this concept of thankfulness? What are we going to do about it? This challenges me like at the core because yeah. m- maybe I'm the only one, but we tend to be like a people of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we attach some sense of comfort or stability to things, of course. And oftentimes that's where our gratitude wants to go. But this challenge, especially like you said in the reform tradition of what you get with God is you get union with Christ right. and that's all that matters. And that's a hard shift even mentally to make that let everything else fall away, whatever may come bad health or bad circumstances or a loss of everything that somehow like the secret that Paul is talking about, that rejoicing in Christ is enough. And that is really difficult, yeah. um, to be honest. Because it's saying that life is about who God is and not what we own. And just think about this, like in, just in a casual setting, if like somebody were to break into my house while I was away at work and steal things, the funny thing, if you think about it, or the ironic, not funny, haha, but funny, ironic, would be, it's, would be almost natural, so to speak, to feel violated by that. But all they would have taken is stuff that belongs to me. Yeah. And so like we're automatically, I think, by our our depravity stuck in this position or our default nature is to say that it's the stuff that somehow is a part of me. And really what we're getting with Christ is this union that says, no, I'm in Christ now. And so like his presence is always the answer to every need, every fear, every suffering. But that's true not because it removes the challenges of life 
or gives us what we want, but because it gives us perspective yeah, and it gives us surety. Like we've, we've already gone at length about how beautiful the Lord God is and his impeccability and passability and his perfection and his unchanging nature. And that's the wonderful thing that in a world that's constantly on shifting sand that we can go to, but what does it mean to go to that place and to have that kind of surety and then to somehow that surety is so strong and so deeply rooted in your life that it becomes plain for all others to see that somehow it bleeds into action and you live differently. Yeah. I know that's the question you asked me and I'm just turning it around and asking you to get in different words, but it's hard, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe before we get super practical, just another kind of um, theoretical or hypothetical or whatever, you know, it strikes me that, um, what you just said about union with Christ being the central feature of reformed reformed faith, and, and there's some disagreement about that, but by and large, union with Christ is kind of the organizing principle of reformed salvation. Everything flows from it. Right. And and for me, one of the things that that sort of lands for me is why the scriptures are so important. Is you know if if um, God forbid uh, something happened to Ashley and and she died. The, the things that would I would cherish the most, of course, I would cherish the pictures and the shared um, things that we have, my wedding ring, her wedding dress, those kinds of things. But the things that would probably um, feel the most real to me, the things that I would cherish the most would be the things that expressed her personality, the things that expressed her thoughts. And the, the things that express her thoughts the most are her words. So I have recordings of things that she's sung, things that she's written, you know, her, her journal or where she takes sermon notes. Those kinds of things would probably be more significant to me in the long run than like the picture that I have of her on my desk. And right. so where I'm going with that is that the words that we have from God are the scriptures. And so, so we, we have Christ right now we have obviously we have the indwelling of the spirit and that's a different subject but we have these words that come from Christ by his spirit that express his person to us in a unique way and so that's part of the reason why Protestants you know Lutheranism is a little bit different but by and large Protestants Lutherans and the reformed it's a it's a faith that's based on hearing not a faith that's based on seeing, which is where Roman Catholicism right. comes in. That's that's why Roman Catholicism is so heavy on the visuals is because it's about seeing God. The beatific vision, which is not just a Roman Catholic thing, but the beatific vision is so central to Roman Catholic theology because it's primarily a relationship or it's primarily a religion of sight. And then there's, you know, sounds and things like that are part of it too. But in, in Reformed theology, Reformed worship, and Reformed thankfulness, we orient our lives around the words of God because those express the person of God to us in a unique and really powerful way. And that's why it's really important that we, we centralize, and this gets to where I think we're going to end up here, is most explicitly, right, if you have the last will and testament of a person that you've lost who you love, you do everything you can to honor the wishes of that person who who's gone. Right. You you know, you go to crazy lengths sometimes to find, you know, the person in the will who's supposed to get this one little uh keepsake that the person has. You know, you 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 search all over the country to find that person because that's what the person wanted. And so the law, the scriptures, particularly the moral law and as it's given to us in the 10 commandments, 
that's God's expressed desire for his people. That's how he wants us to live. And so we look at the law, we look at the word of God, and we structure our life around that because it not only expresses to us the person of God. So in the scriptures, we know God. But right. in the scriptures, we also know God's will for our lives. And that's that's part of, I mean, we're, we're kind of all over the place here, but like that's why we're cessationists. Right. That's why we we elevate the word of God above our subjective experiences of the Holy Spirit, which we can't even always be sure are actually of the Holy Spirit. So we centralize, we we focus our lives, we focus everything about revelation we get from the scriptures because that's where God has most clearly revealed himself to us and revealed his son to us. Man, I love the way you say beatific, by the way. <laughs> beatific? Yeah, that was just that was just beatific right Do there. Do I say it some special way? No, it just sounds like mellifluous. I don't know. It was just... Mellifluous. Was like, That's a good yeah, word. Yeah, I was like, wow. It was just like honey dripping. Let me add like one other thing. Let me go like to the top shelf one more time before we kind of bring it down and make it a little okay. bit practical because something you said really just spurred an observation in me and speaking about God's word. It strikes me if, because this is a reformed podcast, speaking about something that's like really particularly reformed. It strikes me that if you take one circle, which contains like the word gratitude or thankfulness, and you take another one, which is the reformed faith, and you bring them close together where they overlap in that Venn diagram, I think what we get in that center, that common ground is faith. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we receive a gift, we always want to express our gratitude to the person who purchased it or produced the gift for us. You know, so if you give me a gift, I'm going to thank you and, and nobody else. It would be odd, obviously. It'd be nonsensical for me to thank somebody who didn't give me that gift. And Paul has this like really consistent practice of thanking God for the faith, love, and obedience of the various believers to whom he's addressing like his yeah. epistle. So I just looked this up. This is just one example, but this is out of Colossians 1. And he writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And so if I was struck me that if Paul, with what you were saying, if Paul believed that these Colossians were themselves ultimately responsible for the presence of faith and love in their hearts, why did he bother to thank God? Yeah. But, but you know, on the other hand, if Paul believed, which I'm sure you and I believe he did, that God was ultimately the source for their trust in Jesus and their affection towards one another, it makes perfectly good sense for him to express his gratitude to God each time he prays for these Christians. Yeah. So we have like revealed in the word this, what a great gift that the Bible tells us the reality about our world and also about what God does for us. And so wrapping back around with what you said about kind of the Catholic faith there, I suppose you can be grateful in the Catholic faith for having the opportunity, but isn't that opportunity also condemning in a way? Yeah. And so you, without mercy and grace, there's no reason to be thankful, but that is such a strong it's such a strong weight. And the only way I can express it is in my own life, as you know, and I think I mentioned this before, we had a really close uh, family friend who, when I was graduating from high school and looking at colleges, the one that I wanted to go to, we couldn't afford. And this gentleman who had a large inheritance and was a very successful businessman, but was had given that, pushed that all aside to become a teacher. And he was my teacher for part of high school. He, on his own volition, uh, said that he would make up the difference every year, including the increases in the cost. And that kind of gift, which is more than just mercy, 
but this this grace of giving something that's far beyond what I deserved or any person deserved, especially yeah. somebody who's not blood related, is a weight that I continue to think about almost every day. And it spurs me to work hard in what I do, to study and to be consistent, to be a continuous learner, to be an inveterate student, because I have received a lot of grace and I'm insanely grateful for that. Yeah. And so beyond just giving him notes of thanks, which I would often do, I know that the best way that I could show him that I was truly thankful was to work hard and to yeah. use my studies productively. And so there was like a real sacrifice there. And so I guess to bridge that now and to say, well, then with that example seems plain and easy because it happens in, you know, quote unquote, real normal life. But how do we go from now understanding what it means to be in Christ and then to behave in a way that there's a sacrifice of Thanksgiving in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. I mean, I think on one level, the answer is really simple, right? It goes back to what we were saying that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. True. So, so striving to live a life of holiness um, as much as we are able and trusting the Holy Spirit to empower us, um, you know, more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness I think that's like the first the first step is we have to acknowledge that that is actually what God is calling us to in terms of thankfulness. And even even if it wasn't what God was calling us to, I don't even know how you would formulate that. But even if it wasn't what God was calling us to, it's still the right thing. So let's pretend in some crazy world that Zane Hodges in the Lordship Salvation controversy was right. And, and all that you needed to do was to give mental assent to some set of, of propositions. And that, that mental assent to a set of propositions sort of compels God to save you now. Right. Even if that's true, the proper response is still obedience. It's still faithful, thankful obedience to obey the one who has saved you. And so that's part of why that whole system is just irrational, because the idea of someone who um, has been saved and isn't isn't thankful, and maybe this is maybe this is the crux that it turns on, is that if you genuinely are thankful for your salvation, if you genuinely are thankful for what Christ has done for us and what the Father has provided for us in Christ, then that can't but flow out into obedience and 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 right. good works. There's no option. It's not it's not like you can be grateful in another way. And so if you're if you're actually grateful growth in holiness is the natural consequence. And so even our gratitude is a gift from God, right? That's from Ephesians, that mm-hmm. that we are given this gift, not by works so that no one may boast, but for works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Well, those works are the thankfulness that we express. So God has provided the faith. He's provided the way for us to be saved through that faith. He's provided uh, the knowledge of Christ by his spirit. He's renewed our wills. He's brought us back to life. And then he's even made made provision for us to properly show our thankfulness for all of those other gifts that he's given us. It's really the gospel is not complete unless you include the consequences of justification and the consequences of union with Christ, which are, or which is sanctification and all that flows from it, including this life of gratitude that we have. Yes. That's exactly where I was going to go. You're, I mean, there's what more could be said about that. (laughs) I, I think part of it is that, we just forget to rehearse and preach the gospel to ourselves frequently enough. So it's like we hear these lessons and I I don't think it's that we think we are graduating from the school of the gospel or justification or sanctification, but it kind of can lose its edge when we don't kind of keep it firmly fixed in our minds. 
So, I mean, we affirm with the Bible that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ without exception will not perish but have eternal life. Yeah. That has never been an issue. But the problem is no one is naturally willing to submit to the humbling terms of the gospel apart from regenerating grace. Yeah. And so that's bad enough by itself. But, and this is what floors me, God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. So it is man's responsibility. But of course, men naturally love darkness. We hate the light. We're not going to come into the light. So even after God has given this charge to all men, what is amazing is not that he saves only some of us, but that he saves any of us at all. So even though man is obstinate, God still extends his mercy to us. Some get justice, others get mercy, but no one gets injustice. And when I think about that, it really does compel me and, and kind of push me into a different place. And, and that's kind of what I was saying before, what you articulated, I think, much better. And that was, this is in some ways the hallmark of the Christian, is what is your gratitude like? Yeah. And how deep is it? Is it this really deep well? And from inside that well is overflowing this behavior that responds. And I think that our behavior cannot be this type of one-dimensional gratitude where we just feel like we owe God something because he should have spanked us and he didn't. But it's that we are united with Christ, that he is our brother, that we get all of the spiritual blessings that Christ earned, all of really the meritorious work that Christ earned now is credited to our account. And so we just live in that joy, in that respect, in that showing that he is worthy. But it can't be entirely just this, well, I'm afraid that God would have done something bad to me otherwise. And so therefore my gratitude stems from that. Like, I think that's kind of like a cheap gratitude. What do you think? Yeah. I'm struggling here to look up um, the passage I'm looking for, but it it strikes me that this probably should play into our understanding of the parable of the unmerciful servant a little bit. You know, so I always, I always um, understood that passage to mean more or less that the unmerciful servant I guess I always struggled to explain what was going on in, in this passage, because it, if you read it on the first face value, it looks as though the, the person's debt is forgiven. And then they go out and they demand that other people pay back the debt they're owed. And then it's like the debt is unforgiven because of the person's bad behavior. So um, it comes out of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing here. Um, Starting in 23, it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And you can just read an unpayable amount of money. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Um, And then it goes down and in verse 32 it says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then he throws him into jail. And I wonder if maybe part of this, part of the thought process we need to apply to this is that this change of state, this change of reality, this legal change happened, right? His debts were forgiven, but because he did not walk in 
the new reality of his justification, more or less, because he did not walk in that, it's demonstrated to be illusory. And right. so we we think of that in terms of forgiveness. Um, but in reality, it's not just forgiveness of other people. It's obedience writ large, right? It, and, and as we're talking about it, it's gratitude writ large. This servant demonstrated that he had no gratitude for what was done for him because he was not willing to live life in a new way that reflected his new state of his state of existence. He essentially, um, and I'm just spitballing here. So maybe someone's going to like pull out Calvin and prove how wrong I am at some point, but he essentially says, I'm going to continue to live my life as though I owe this guy a bunch of money. And that's why I have to go violently get it from everyone else because I owe, I still owe all this money. So I have to recoup it. I have to go get it somewhere. So I'm going to, I'm going to grab this guy by the throat. I'm going to demand he gives it to me. And right. so what the, what the master says essentially is if you want to live like life, like you're still in debt, then I'm going to go ahead and just say you're still in debt. And so, you know, I'm not exactly sure how that translates to our justification, except to say that gratitude, including, which would include forgiveness for others. So maybe that's our first concrete thing that we're going to say is if you are grateful for the salvation that you have in Christ, then it is incumbent upon you to demonstrate that gratitude by being a forgiving person. Right. So right. when someone cuts you off in traffic, rather than hold that against them, you're going to say, I'm not going to hold this, hold this against them. I'm going to let it go because I'm grateful for what the Lord has done for me. Right. Instead of living life like, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm still condemned. And so I'm going to condemn everyone else around me. Um, when we do that, we demonstrate because we do not manifest our gratefulness that there's no justification in the first place, which is what this parable comes out as. Right on. And that's not to say that there aren't times, as we've mentioned before, where there's to be a holy dread of God in terms of the fact that we are sinners before him. But I like your interpretation of that because it's essentially bringing forward this idea that if you do not behave like you are truly grateful because you have been um, changed by the mercy of God, then you haven't been changed by the mercy of God. And in this particular parable, what strikes me, even just hearing it in your voice read, which was also beautiful is that we're talking just about mercy here, not even about grace, yeah. which we get from through Christ above and beyond that. So yeah. this is almost like a lesser example of how we ought to live. We should have all the more desire to live a, a life that's holy and set apart yeah. and fully obedient because we've not just been saved from bad things, but given all the good stuff as well, which is just something I, I never tire of hearing. That It's not just about... Again, the debt has been paid. And I love so much because of my own you know, day job that Jesus speaks so much about money and puts these things in terms of debt because not only something that we understand across cultures, but it's something that is really weighty when you're in debt. Yeah. You understand yeah. what those chains are. So to be released from some kind of debt, if you've ever had that actually happen in your life, is like a jubilee. I mean, it's a literal jubilee. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing that I would say in response to what you just said there, that would be a practical thing, is I think, and maybe I'm just talking to myself here, is that... We need to get it in our minds that we are actually in unity with Christ from God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is if you're married, there is probably never, or there shouldn't be, but I'm guessing there's never any point in your day, no matter what you're doing, whether you're at work, whether you are watching a movie, whether you're reading a book, there's never any time that you forget that you're married. 
Yeah. And so for me, like I, I go to work and, you know, I'm doing stuff and sometimes, you know, my wife pops in my head and I think, oh, I want to tell her this. That was really funny. Or there's this thing I meant to talk to her about. But, you know, if, if I go for a run and I take off my wedding band so that I don't lose it, it's not as if because I don't see it, I immediately forget yeah. that she is part of my life. We have a union that is so strong that it is always consciously with me, if only in the back of my mind. And I often, I've been convicted recently. That is not the way I perceive Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I need to be more thoughtful about that because the unity that I have with him is, is even greater than my bond with my wife and marriage. And yet that problem doesn't reside with him. It resides with me. It's, it's a transformation of my own mind, being in the word, regularly meditating, regularly taking on this kind of conscious praying at all times. I have to think that's almost part of what Paul's talking about when he says pray without ceasing. It's this always yeah. conscious, even if it's just in the back of your mind, that you're unified with Christ, that the Holy Spirit is with you, that you are the temple of God going everywhere. And so I want to get to that place. And so I think part of that is uh, writing notes to yourself, honestly, like having a little post-it note that just says something that would remind you, kind of point you heavenly word, uh, heaven word or heavenly word. Um, that would give you kind of that sensibility. So kind of, I would say one of practical things is constantly reminding ourselves of this gospel that is we are united with Christ and that's a true reality. It it impacts your daily life. Christ is with you through the Holy Spirit and that's something real, though it is not tangible in this life. It is something that is nonetheless a reality of unification, stronger than marriage and something that should kind of always be mulling somewhere and turning around in our minds. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we're going to get to um, much more in terms of practical um, things, because on one level, we could, I mean, we could just start reading things out of the law. We could just talk about things that Christians should do. But on a broad level, you know, and this is, this is why it's so important to remember that sanctification is not something we do. Right. It's not something we produce. It's not something that we help God produce or something that God helps us produce. It's something that God does to us. And the reason that I I say that is because something you just said struck me is that if you are not living like a sanctified person, it's because you're not. So so if you if you are not growing in holiness and we all have setbacks, right? This is not some sort of, of perfectionism or even, even some sort of um, progressivism, right? I, I think that in general, a Christian should be growing in holiness such that they can look back over their life and see progress. Not always though, right? There, there are reasons why that may not be the case. And ultimately the, the ground of our assurance is in the promises of Christ and in the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. But if you look at your life and there's no sign that God has sanctified you, there's no evidence that God has sanctified you, then it seems insane to me to think, well, I, I, but I actually am sanctified. There's just no evidence of it. There's not anywhere else in life that we would look at and say like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess like I own this car, but there's no car there and I don't have a title and I've never seen the car and I've never driven the car. And, um, I, you know, I didn't pay for the car, but I still own the car. Like that would just be insanity. And so when we look at our lives and we we look for all of the things that the Bible tells us are the marks of holiness, that we, we have the fruit of the spirit, that we're growing in conformity to the law, that we look more and more like Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit testifies to us. If all of those things are absent, right? If, if like in the parable, we're running out and acting like we still owe an unpayable debt 
and we're still we're still living life as though Christ has not done anything for us, then maybe we have to wonder if we're not saved. And that that's exactly what the warning passages in Hebrews are getting at. If you live life in a way that doesn't demonstrate that you're part of the covenant, that your gratitude is there, then maybe it's not. And so I guess, you know, maybe if we were to put one more practical thing on it is like Peter says, make your calling and election sure. And how do we do that? By walking in obedience and demonstrating the reality of who we are in Christ outwardly, right? All of this talk of good works, it's like, it's like I'm developing a whole new theology of good works on the fly here. It's kind of, kind of actually like messing with my head a little bit, but like, how is it that we shine our light before men? Well, we do it out of gratitude for the Lord, right? Right. We don't do it to boast. We don't do it to brag. We don't even really do it for evangelism purposes, right? In that passage, the purpose is you shine your light so that men may glorify God. It's not, it's not necessarily so they may become Christians. It's not necessarily any of that. It's that so people might see you and that your good works might bring glory to God. Like it, it's a whole new, it's like a whole new way of thinking about things. Right on. That It's one of the places where I think we could, we would do really well, like you said, to weigh out our attitudes for why we do things. Yeah. And I think that's always something that serves us well in terms of practical living and kind of growing in piety because we we ought to question when we do something why we're doing it. And I find this a lot in my own life where even in acts of service, there is always some selfishness that wants to come in. There's always kind of this glittering sin, so to speak. Yeah. And so it strikes me that in the parable we were just talking about, this servant that goes away with the debt forgiven, he is in, going into this absolute action of selfishness because what I can only presume, you know, speaking from the monetary side of that parable, here you have one guy that owes a tremendous amount of money, and at least some of that debt will be offset by the servant who owes him money. Right. And the most selfish thing he can do is to realize now all of my debt has been forgiven, so all that I can collect is now just for me. Right. And so I think we're we're prone to live that way apart from the Lord. And that's why this is a, a strong and a tough test, but a real one nonetheless. And that is, I think, to the degree that we are grateful is the degree to which we really know how changed we've been, how much we've really understood what God has done for us, not because we're smart enough or we read enough books, but because God has done exactly what he promised to do for his children whom he has called and saved. And that is he will take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And the heart that is flesh fleshed out and sensitive is the one that cannot help but respond in actual action. So maybe a good challenge for all of us is, I mean, do something for somebody this week in a way that is a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. I mean, pray through that. Ask for God, I think, to provide that kind of opportunity. But we've said before, really love, apart from willingness to be inconvenienced, is not really love. And so gratitude is really the expression of true love in a way that is dying to self and bringing about a sacrifice of thanksgiving that, like you said, is not about just doing good things for the sake of good things, but there are needs all around us where God is wanting to be glorified and he will use us to bring him glory if we sometimes might just get on our knees and say, Lord, where you go, where you send me, I will go. What you need me to do today, I will do with an attitude of gratefulness because of what you've done for me. And that's a really hard prayer to pray consistently, I think. Yeah. But it's one that I want to I want to move into. I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna find this stuff on a Hallmark card, but I wish there yeah. was a Hallmark card that had like the three G's 
from the Heidelberg <laughs> that was like happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Guilt. <laughs> yeah. I mean it you know, it it's it's interesting thinking about this in, in kind of a new light, forgive the the unintentional pun here. But it doesn't the scripture doesn't say a city on a hill ought not to be hidden. Right? Right. It says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so if you go out to a dark hill and you point and go, well, there's a city there, people are going to look at you like you're stupid because there's not a city there. Because if there was a city there, you would see it. I mean, we live, I live in a, a small rural area. And so there's this, there's this place and you'll know what I'm talking about, but other people won't. There's this place when I'm driving back to our place from mom and dad's where you can look out and you can see this elementary school over, like down the hill and it's, it's far away. But because it's lit up and it's on a hill, you can see it from all around. Everywhere that you have a line of sight, you can see the school. And that's that's what this is, right? If if we are a city on a hill, then we cannot be hidden. And so I guess what I would say, this reminds me of the conversation we had last year around uh, Christmas time about joy. About how joy is not something that a Christian has, but in a sense, joy is something that a Christian is. And I think gratitude is is similar, is that... Gratitude is not just something we have or something that we do, but as Christians, gratitude's uh, gratitude kind of like pervades our entire life, or it should. Sure. At least. And so, just as a city on a hill cannot be hidden, a Christian cannot be ungrateful. It, it's like a total contradiction in terms. So, I, I guess what I would challenge you and myself and our listeners to this week. Is as we, you know, this is coming out on Wednesday. So most people are going to listen to this Wednesday and the next day they're going to gather with their family and and maybe you're going to go around the table and you're going to say, here's what I'm thankful for. But maybe instead you just get up and you clean up the dishes. Right. And if someone says, oh, thanks for doing that. Well, you can say, I'm just so thankful for my family and I'm just so thankful for what the Lord has given me. And it's the least that I can do to demonstrate that is to clean up the dishes or to offer to drive or whatever your concrete, practical expression of gratitude would be. But here's the kicker. It can't just be a general vague understanding of thankfulness, right? Exactly. We have to point to the Lord in our gratitude in order for this to truly be Christian gratitude. I can't just say, I mean, you've talked about this one time when you're like in a meeting when someone says like, oh yeah, you did a great job on that presentation. And you're, you're learning to say, even though I'm sure at times it's awkward. Yeah. Well, the Lord really just, really just helped me push through this difficult presentation or really gave me the, the perseverance to work hard on this project. That's the kind of people we need to be. And that's how we're city on a hill. It's not preach the gospel, use words of like, that's dumb. That's a stupid saying, but (laughs) be grateful people and then explain how your practical acts of gratitude are responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that is a powerful testimony that will speak volumes when connected with the actual verbal explanation of the gospel to people. Um, It's like a whole different way to look at the world. It's a whole different way to live. It is. I love that. And if you're feeling like, as you're hearing this, I'm not really there yet. I think in some respects that's okay because we need to go back to the scriptures and continue to bathe ourselves in the truth of the gospel. And I think once we do that and can you do that faithfully, God will, through his gift of sanctification, turn our hearts in such a direction that we will want to do those things. You know, there'll always be times where, like you said, we'll fall into selfish patterns and we'll resist that. But we always come back to the fact of, I want to do this stuff. 
because of God's great love for me. Like no yeah. other reason. It, it almost sounds weird because we're kind of saying in a way, don't even worry about your neighbor. Like your love for neighbor will take care of itself. Exactly. If your heart is filled with gratitude such that it's compelled to love that neighbor, you don't have yep. to manufacture it anymore. And, and right. that goes back to trying to, again, conjure up some kind of meritorious activity that somehow gets us in the right mood. This isn't like trying to get in the Christmas spirit. It's just bathing ourselves in understanding what God has done for us through Jesus Christ and the giving of his spirit to us. Yeah. And man, we could just keep going like for another like two hours on this because the more we talk about it, the more once again excited I get. Yeah. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that this, this week, especially I'm going to, I have a couple of things in mind, but I want to pick a couple of things to do uh, to pray over those activities beforehand and to really just do them out of a sense of gratitude. Yeah. Take this energy that we get I mean, I, do you ever get this way? Like you hear a great sermon on the Lord's day or like you're with a group of friends, even if it's just like informally, you start talking about spiritual things and you just kind of get like a little bit like of energy or excitement. You know yeah, what I'm talking about? I do. I feel it right now. <laughs> I mean, it's like I do. Like I, I'm, I'm already that was thinking, so chill though. <laughs> I'm thinking about the ways that I can like live this out when I go to work tomorrow morning. Like the ways that I can live this out when I sit down and have a performance management like discussion with a coworker, with an employee, like how do I show gratefulness in a way that's winsome and like presents the gospel in that situation? So it it has, it really has given me like a different way to look at my life and my vocation that I, I think is, is really like, this is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, which right it, it's not, I'm not saying that to be like, you know, sometimes like the social gospel, like that's at the heart of what it means to be like all of these things that people say is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I think this really is because all we're saying is that obedience to the law in gratitude for what Christ has done is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, which is just Amen. self-evident. So we have to wrap up. Like I said, I mean, we, we could, we could probably go, I thought we were going to have trouble with this topic, to be honest with you. Cause I didn't have anything even like cursorily planned, but like, this is something that I feel like we could just, we could just riff on for another hour. We could. And for that matter, this is why theology matters because yeah. in terms of gratitude for faith, that's very distinct to the Reformed tradition. So yeah. our, our Arminian brothers and sisters would disagree with us, at least in some respect, on a kind of a, a scale yeah. as to where faith comes from. But again, if you are understanding what the scriptures present to us, that faith comes through God by him. It is a gift in itself. Like even that should just blow us away. Like right. my believing, I can't even do on my own. So I'm, I'm just super grateful for that. So yeah. you're right. This is, I think this has probably been the definitive podcast on <laughs> gratitude. It might be and the less, only podcast I've ever heard on gratitude. Oh, really? Which is kind of kind of strange, actually. It is well because it's it's like a cliche, right? And I think yeah. some people shy away from it this time of year because they don't want to feel like they're just playing into the cliche, like yeah. you know. But we, we we lean directly into the cliche. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you shouldn't do on a podcast, whatever is not cool, that is what we're gonna do. Yeah, yeah. On that note. On that note. <sighs> Jesse. If you want to call us and leave a message. <laughs> it's like we forgot how to finish the show. Yeah, it's like we just got out of sorts because now I want to just show some gratitude. I want to love on some people. Um, if you want to call us and leave a voicemail, but you don't need to tell us what you're thankful for. That number is 607-444-2767. Yep. And you can also email us at info at uh, reformbrotherhood.com. 
And we do still do question cast once a month and we love taking listener questions. Um, and, uh, we just love to hear from you. We love to, uh, interact with our audience. We love to hear what ways the show is edifying you. We love positive or negative feedback. Um, I, I know I joke about like throwing the hate mail straight in the garbage, but we don't do that. If you've got criticism, we listen to it. Um, so yeah, give us a call, shoot us an email. We would love to hear from you. You just use the word love a lot right there. I love the word love. Love. <laughs> well, it's all on about that love, note. love, love. On that, yeah, that's very Beatles of you. <laughs> on that note, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.